You're listening to Preaching Source, a ministry of Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary's School of Preaching. I'm your host, Professor Barry McCarty. Today on Preaching Source, we have Dr. Stephen Smith, who's the Vice President of Student Services here at Southwestern Seminary. But more important for us on Preaching Source, he's one of the professors in the School of Preaching at Southwestern. Dr. Smith, welcome to Preaching Source. Thank you, friend. Appreciate it. Now, I'm, I've been really excited about talking with you today because you are the author of recapturing the voice of God, which is all about uh, the use of genre in understanding Scripture. And so I hope you'll talk to us some about that. But before we talk specifically about the book or genre, what, uh, what is your theology of text-driven preaching? What, what's the theology behind the approach that you take and that the School of Preaching takes to text-driven preaching? Yeah. Well, text-driven preaching begins with the assumption that God has revealed Himself in His Word. And so we know this. Uh, intuitively, the preachers that come in know that God has revealed Himself in His Word. But it's, it's deeper than this. If, so if you look at 2 Corinthians 4 and then Colossians uh, 1, 15a, maybe the most concise statement of it, where it says that Christ is the image of the Father. Greek word is ekon there, so it means uh, exact representation, to use the language of, of Hebrews 1. So Christ is the ultimate form of communication because he exactly represented the Father. So uh, the illustration I use in class is to ask students, what is the ultimate act of, in, of communication? And communication is representation. So if, if someone gets my words, they gets what's going on in my head. In other words, the words have represented to someone what's going on in my head. We would say a good photograph is a good likeness of someone. A good um, you know, piece of art is one that represented what the artist had in mind. So in that way, the incarnation is the ultimate form of communication because Jesus got the Father exactly right. Right? I mean, there's nothing that the Father wanted to say that when Jesus got back up into heaven, the Father said, yeah, it was, it was close. You know, you almost, you know, there's none of that. I mean, he exactly got it right, precisely. And so the word econ there in Colossians 1.15, it's also used in 2 Corinthians 4, means exact. Jesus is a mirror image of the Father. We know what the Father thinks about things because it's revealed in the Word. So that's, that's our ambition. Our ambition is nothing less than that. I mean, when we preach... I'm striving to be to the Word of God what Jesus was to the Father. So I, in, 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 a, in an imitation of Christ, I want to get as faithful as I can to the Word. And the reason that, if you were to you know, back out from that thought of Jesus just as our model, there's something even bigger than that. And this again goes to 2 Corinthians 4, that God has revealed himself in the Son. He's the icon, he's the image. But the Son has revealed himself in the Word. And so Jesus told his disciples, John 14, look, I'm leaving, but that's okay. I have so much more to say to you. But the Holy Spirit is going to say what I would have said if I was going to hear. He would say it through the Word. So the Father's revealed in the Son. The Son is revealed in the Word. And the Word is revealed to the people through the preacher. So in that way, in the preaching moment, we stand in God's direct revelation of himself to the people in so much as we faithfully represent the Word. And so text-driven preaching is not the only way to preach. 
So if I was going to get a tattoo, which I'm not planning on, but if I was getting a tattoo, it wouldn't be text-driven preaching. It would be more along the lines of how can I faithfully represent the Word, because that's where it's at. And what I mean by text-driven preaching, this may sound odd, but, but it has changed for me over the last 10 years. It's changed in the same direction, and I'm hoping that in the next few years it'll change more. So in other words, I, I'm not going to give my life for a, a certain method, but I, the method is an answer to the question, what most faithfully represents the Word? Because I want to represent the Word so then where people see the Word, they're going to get Christ, and if I get, they get Christ, they can get the Father. That, that's what's at issue. All right. Would, would you describe text-driven preaching as more of a theology of preaching, a philosophy of preaching, or a methodology? Well, yeah, I would say that there are three tiers, if you will. And, and so you, you've got it there. The top tier is a theology of preaching. The middle tier is a methodology of preaching or a philosophy of preaching. And the lower tier, I think, would be style. And so to answer your question is, I, I think it's that middle tier. I think it's a methodology. But it's a methodology. Text-driven preaching is a theologically driven philosophy of preaching. So that's why I would put it in that middle tier. So where I began as learning how to preach is I began, I think where a lot of guys began, with that bottom tier of style. So, and that's okay. We all learn by imitation. And so I have students, when I you know, see them in the classroom, when they begin to preach in our lab, I immediately know who they've been listening to. I mean, it's no question if they've been listening to Dr. Patterson or Jerry Vines or John Piper or Matt Chandler, it just comes out of them. That's okay. We all learn by imitation. But the temptation is, is to like somebody's style, then moving up this ladder, if you will, they start with that style, that lower tier, they back into their philosophy, their methodology, and then they back into theology. So a lot of people have the theology of a preacher because they began at the lower tier with a style. So what we want to do in the classroom, this is what text-driven preaching about, this is what preaching source is about. We want them to think critically about how God has revealed himself in his son and how the son is revealed in the word, the theology. And then ask this question, okay, what methodology best does that? So you begin with theology, then you come down into the philosophy of preaching, the methodology, which is text-driven preaching. And I think that for me, that methodology best does, represents what God has done in his word. And then coming down, lower down the ladder to that third tier is the style. And your personality and your context will determine that. So style's not an important, it's just not ultimate. All right. Dr. Smith, one of the unique contributions that you're making to this whole uh, approach of text-driven preaching is calling preachers' attention to the genre of Scripture, and that's, that's the substance of your, your latest book, Recapturing the Voice of God. Can, can you talk to us about the, how the genre of Scripture should guide the preacher in, in how he pulls the text out and preaches it, how he even structures the, the sermon. Yeah, absolutely. We have an hour for the podcast. Is that right? <laughs> that... I'd, I'd love to spend an hour with okay. you. But I think we've got about 15 minutes <laughs> okay. today. Well, yeah, so for me, it, it comes out of that same conviction of Colossians 1. If, if God is perfectly revealed in the Son, and the Son is perfectly revealed in the Word, I don't think we're going to get to heaven and God say, yeah, there was so much more I just want to know it's it, everything God wants to know about himself is revealed in the Son, and the Son is revealed in the Word, then, then I have to figure out how the Word is communicating uh, what it wants to say. And what I realized is, is that there's not just meaning, the way language works, and you know this as someone who loves language, 
there's, there's meaning not just on the content level, on the substance level, but we all know, we're all communicators, that there's meaning in how we say it. And if that's true in private conversation and personal conversation, it's certainly true about this ultimate form of communication, which is the Word of God. So when you look at a passage of Scripture, a unit of thought, let's take John 1, 1 through 5, the discussion of Jesus as the Word. Well, there's, there's content there, but there's also some very interesting rhetorical devices that the author uses to help communicate that. Well, that's not accidental. There's meaning there. There's also a structure to the argument. And so, um, so I think when you, you say, what does this text mean? You have to make at least three considerations. What's the content, the substance? How is it communicated? What's the structure? And what's the emotional design that the authors put in there? Um, so there's a difference between Psalm 23, the comfort of Jesus being a good shepherd, and Luke 16, a warning about the fact that if you're obsessed with riches, and it's probably evidence that you're going to go to hell. So the, those two texts have different emotional designs. So what, I'm, what I think that leads me to believe is that a sermon is not a sermon is not a sermon is not a sermon. Uh, it, when you begin preaching, one of the most wonderful things you can have in mind is a template, a, a structure that you can lay on a text. It's so helpful. But after a while, what we find ourselves doing, or at least what I did after a few years of pastoral ministry, is I found myself preaching the template and not the text. I don't know if that makes sense. So I'm not arguing against having a template in recapturing the voice of God. What I'm arguing is let the text be the template. So if you're preaching poetry and three major genres of Scripture on a macro level, there's letters, there's poems, and there's stories. That's it. All the Bible is either a letter, a poem, and a story. Everything in the Bible is. So when I'm preaching a poetry, I've got to look at the Hebrew poetic structure, how they use strophe and parallelism and all these type of things to try to figure out how, what, what is the meaning? And if I'm preaching an epistle, there's a paragraph unit structure that's unique to letters where Paul makes most often really deductive linear type of arguments. And so when we say point one, point two, point three, that really lends itself to, a, to an epistolatory structure. But by way of contrast, when you look at the narratives, what is over 60% of the Bible, uh, there aren't points in narratives necessarily. The author's not trying to make points. He's trying to lead us to a conclusion inductively um, by the use of the scenes in a story and the plot structure. And so really it's just a, it's a wonderful thing because when I go to approach a text, so tonight I'm working through Jeremiah, the, the third and fourth chair of chapters of Jeremiah. It's all about repentance. Well, coming into that, studying that, I, I don't know how that's going to turn out. The template is not predicted for me. I mean, it's just that excites me so much. It's wonderful. Uh, that means I have to study it and kind of figure out and let, let that structure become buoyant. In other words, let it come up to the surface. I, parables are my favorite genre. There are you know, 40 parables depending on how you categorize them, but no two are identical. And one may be one verse. So you have uh, Matthew 13, 51, one whole parable in one verse. Then you have uh, Luke 15, the whole chapter is one parable or two parables. So, um, so anyway, it's a wonderful thing to not have it scripted, to let the text be the template and enjoy the creativity that's in the Word of God. All right, Dr. Smith, what, what I'm hearing here, people love threes, and especially yeah. preacher. You know, we have the three little pigs, the three yeah. musketeers, <laughs> uh, truth, justice in the American way. Yeah. Uh, and often uh, preachers are trying to uh, look at a passage and think, well, okay, where can I find three yeah. good points in here? But what I'm hearing you say today and, and what you've written in uh, Recapturing the Voice of God is, uh, hey, if this is poetry or prophecy, 
uh, what's uh, how does the poem lay out? What's the structure? That's right. Of, uh, what are the where are the strophe? Where are the stanzas? And if I've got a narrative or a story, it's okay. What are the scenes? How does the story move? How does the plot develop? And then Dr. Allen is uh, in one of our podcasts here. Dr. Allen has talked about dealing with epistles and the clausal outlines. So there, there's a different structure in each of the three genres, and and you're looking for that voice that comes from the genre. That's, that's right. Yeah, it's exactly right. And it's, again, it's just so liberating because, I mean, just my experience in the last, you know, 20-something years I've been preaching, uh, I came out of a tradition where a heavy outline, oftentimes alliterated, was considered a great work of art. You strive for that. I think in reaction to that, maybe in the 80s, guys begin to preach with no outline. So I'm not saying the text shouldn't have a structure, the sermon shouldn't have a structure. I'm saying it should always have a structure. It just be the structure of the text. And, and by the way, maybe you can answer this as a rhetorician, why we're so attracted to threes, but the most influential homiletician uh, in Southern Baptist life is a guy named John Broadus. His student um, uh, was uh, the student of his student. It was a guy named Jeff Ray, our first homiletics professor. So it's a very, in, at Southwestern, so a very short line from John Broadus to Southwestern in our tradition. But John Broadus believed, and he was a student of the classics. He didn't have any homiletic training. It was All his training was in rhetoric and the classics. He believed that we thought better in threes. And so he advocated that. Uh, so interesting, that whole joke about three points in a poem as a Baptist has a very clear tradition as to why we have that in the literature. Yeah. I think uh, psychologists tell us that it's easy for the human mind to hold three discrete packets of information at the same time. But once you get beyond that, it gets a little more difficult. Although, uh, as Dr. Allen has, has said in his book and his podcast, you know, if, you, if your passage has two major points and one sub-point, your sermon needs to have two major That's points, right. one sub-point. Yeah. So I, I appreciate the you bring a fresh perspective in recapturing the voice of God because you, you're showing us there are different ways to structure a sermon because there are different ways yeah. that different genres are structured. Yeah, and I think people will appreciate that. I mean, you don't have to be an expert in literature to appreciate the fact that Every time your pastor stands up, it's going to be different because every text is different. Mm, so, well, thank you uh, for uh, sort of opening up, recapturing the voice of God and, and the question of genre for us. I, I also, while we have you here, I want to ask you about something else. You've uh, uh, written a wonderful article on Christology in preaching. And w- would you talk to us a little bit about that, about how, uh, how do you make preaching Christological, yeah. Even in the if it's in the Old Testament, even. But how how do you do a, a Christological preaching that's true to whatever the text is that you're dealing with? Sure. Well, what I did in that article is I took the the four major Christological passages of the New Testament. There's several, but some people recognize John one, Hebrews one, Philippians two, and Colossians one as these four major Christological passages. And it just it's kind of what I said earlier: this idea that Jesus' ambition was never selfishly oriented. In fact, if you look at Philippians chapter 2, you can argue that Christ concealed himself so that the Father could be revealed through him. He was never 
Uh, he was the son of God, but there's a sense in which he saw himself as a front man for the father's will, not his own, which is, which is shocking. So his idea was, I'm going to represent the father. And so we use this phrase oftentimes that preaching is re-presenting the text. And the reason why is not just because that's some novel approach. It has a strong theological tradition. Jesus was representing his father to us we represent the text so that people can get Christ, and in Christ they get the Father. So when I stand up, it's a wonderful thing. I don't have to be my dad or you or Paige Patterson or anyone else. I, I'm up there to represent what God says, and that's enough. I mean, it's just incredibly liberating. So, And then in that article, I ended it with Philippians 2 because you see Christ um, deferring his own will for the will of the Father's. And so he has to um, die, in other words, to whatever selfish desires he might have, if we could use that language loosely describing the, the incarnation of Christ, so that the Father's will could live. And, you know, when we're preaching Philippians 2, we can make all types of applications of that to our people, so that a high school student has to, if he's going to submit his will to the will of God, has to obey his parents. Um, a father may have to put his family first or whatever you know, application there is. So the application for the preacher is very simple. Um, Christ did not take the glory for himself when he's on earth so that he'd be ultimately glorified by the Father. So he deferred that. For a preacher, I think the application is, is that when I stand up to preach, I am not the front man for my tradition, my personality, my intellect. I'm not trying to convince you how witty or hip or traditional or conservative I am. That's not the point. I'm trying to die so that other people might live. I'm trying to show them who God is in that moment. And uh, that's the um, you know, idea behind that, you know, the really tough verse there. I think it's verse 11 where he laid aside. What does that mean? You know, he deferred his rights, if you will, or privileges as the son of God. So to, in my mind, that's, that's what it means to not necessarily preach Christologically, but rather what it is about the nature of Christ that influences how we preach. Um, Christ-centered preaching, you know, is, a, is another you know, conversation and has really taken a lot of interesting turns in the literature right now, which is really, really very interesting. But, but to your question in the article, I was trying to say, what about the nature and character of Christ helps me understand um, how I preach? Mm, Let's do talk for just a little bit about uh, often uh, preachers who have a burden for, for uplifting Christ uh, sometimes are tempted to impose uh, ideas about Christ on a passage, uh, say in in the Old Testament, uh, how what, can you give us some some guidelines on sure. how how do we be faithful to what's in, let's say, an Old Testament, let's uh, or the Book of Ruth, for example? Uh, I mean that this book is about Ruth and Naomi and yeah. about the birth of the grandfather of of King David, and it, sure. it's a it's a book about establishing. Uh, the line of David there, but there's uh, there, that kinsman redeemer uh, is is uh, you know a tempting type of yeah. Christ. Are are we being faithful to to the text if we draw some attention to the kinsman redeemer as yeah. a picture of Jesus? Is that legitimate to do? Right. Well, let me. If I, I, I get that question all the time, you know, because people are thinking about it. And let me just before I answer it, let me just stop and say, I know not everybody's listening to Southern Baptist, but in Southern Baptist, we have this wonderful tradition of I would say an evangelistic hermeneutic. So about Christ-centered preaching, well, my dad's an evangelist. He was my pastor growing up. But every sermon is Christ-centered in that every sermon ends with, you need to get saved. 
And so I think a lot of times younger generations will look at that and we want to be more, you know, um, exegetically nuanced. That's fine. But I think we need to stop and appreciate. That's a wonderful tradition to, um, to say, okay, look, I've preached the text. Now, are you, you know, are you saved? I think that's a, that's a wonderful thing to do. Um, what's not a wonderful thing to do, of course, is to play exegetical games with the text and to see Christ in places where he's not necessarily there. Um, there's a wonderful book that I'd recommend to preachers uh, by a guy named Clink on biblical theology, the root of all the Christ-centered preaching. Uh, the question you have to ask is, how do I approach the text? Do I, present it, do I approach it with a salvation history model? Uh, do I promote um, approach it from a canonical or compositional type of model. So anyway, I would recommend that text. But but a short answer to your question would be, I think you've already answered it, the significance of Ruth is not in Ruth, it's in Matthew 1, where she shows up in the lineage of Christ. So the way to preach Christ from Ruth, and where workshop is, up, is coming up on this very issue, is just to say, look, there's Ruth. Since the canon makes this connection, she's there at the end of Ruth and she's there in Matthew 1, that's the connection. Eventually, God, ultimately, God blesses Ruth because she's going to be in, she's going to be the line that provides us David. God makes the covenant promise to David that's not implicit, it's explicit. You're going to have this everlasting kingdom that's never going to end. That's certainly a reference to Christ. So there's a way to get to Christ. And here's the important thing that's the way the Bible does it. So I have this ulterior motive. I'm not just trying to see people saved in the moment, that's one moment, but I, I have another pastoral concern. And that is that I want my people to understand how the Bible relates to itself. So I think we have this fiduciary obligation when we're preaching Ruth to bring up Matthew 1 because Scripture does. And that's the way the Bible relates to itself. Wow. Uh, Dr. Smith's book, his latest book, is Recapturing the Voice of God. And the subtitle is Shaping Sermons Like Scripture. And uh, we actually use that as a text. I use it as a text in my intro to preaching class and some of our other classes here. And it's proving very helpful to our students. And I think it would prove helpful to all the pastors out there who are listening to Preaching Source. So we highly recommend Dr. Smith's book, Recapturing the Voice of God. Dr. Smith, thank you for being with us Absolutely. today on Preaching Source. Yeah, thank you, friend.